and I almost fell, I stepped and I almost fell into the gully. Well, a bear apparently knew that salmon would get trapped in that pool trying oh. to get up this little waterfall. So there was a bear, a full, full-grown black bear oh. in the gully. And this is a dinky creek. This was <laughs> a little, you know, I mean, that pool was the only place that salmon could stop. And so the gully wasn't very big and the creek wasn't very big. And, and if I'd fallen in there, I'd fallen probably on him or at least right in front of him, you know, a foot away from him. And uh, what happened is I my foot started to go in. That was Skip Morris talking about almost falling on top of a bear, the steps that followed, and why judo may have saved his life in this situation. This is episode number 36 of the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. In today's episode, I interview Skip Morris, the author of 18 fly tying and fly fishing books on trout, bass, and many other topics. We get into his background in fly fishing and how he has spent the first 10 years of his career designing rods. Uh, We cover West Slope cutthroat fishing on the Locksaw in Idaho and tying with buffalo hair. Don't miss this as Skip talks about his wife and his connection to this amazing women's movement that we're currently seeing and why this is so significant right now. So without further ado, here's Skip Morris from SkipMorrisFlyTying.com. How's it going, Skip? I'm fine. Looking forward to speaking with you. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. I, uh, you know, a lot of my guests, I, I, I interview a lot of, uh, some pretty big names out there in, in fly fishing and, um, you know, not all of them. Some of them I've, I've never heard, heard, heard of before, but you, I've definitely, I've read your books, you know, I've seen your stuff over the years and definitely is pretty much as long as I can remember, I've seen your stuff. So it's pretty cool to be interviewing you here on the show now and, and dig into some trout fishing. I, mean, I really want to focus on trout and fly tying because I, I know you've done a lot of stuff, including bass and, you know, lakes and things like that. But I want to keep this focused here uh, today. But um, yeah, if that sounds good, you ready to get started on this? I am. All right. Um, so before we jump into kind of some of the tips and, you know, techniques and things like that, I was hoping you can maybe just start us off with a little background on, you know, how you got into fly fishing and, you know, and how you got to ultimately where you are now with, I'm not even sure how many books and videos you have uh, published out there, but, uh, you know, you're, you're a big name in fly fishing and maybe you can just bring us back how it all came to be. Sure. Well, actually, it's uh, 18 books at this point, and I really don't know how many videos. It's, okay. It's a, several. I don't. I couldn't tell you offhand, but uh-huh. uh, well, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, a lot of people, their dad taught them to fly fish, or an uncle, or somebody like that. You know, maybe even an aunt. And uh, it wasn't like that for me at all. My dad was crazy about uh, boats, and he sold boats and raced boats, and and the only fishing he ever did was. He would throw, you know, he would troll once in a while to see if he could catch a few salmon. And so we ate so much salmon that to this very day, I, ha- I can't eat it more than once a month or I just don't like it. Wow. It's nothing against salmon itself. It's just, you know, yeah. So I guess some people were probably raised on spam and they don't can't handle spam. So yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> sort of like that for me. But once a month is good. Okay. <laughs> it'd probably be once a week if it weren't for that. But anyway, so my dad nobody in the family. I didn't have any brothers or sisters. Uh, trying to think if I, I had an aunt, I don't think I had any, any real uncles. I had all these fake aunts and uncles, but none of them were fly fishers. So I just, uh, you know, when I was a little 
tiny kid, I saw that a fish could be caught, and I just, my eyes just, you know, turned around because I, that was just, just hit me right. I guess is the only way I can say it. I, it just, you know, it just, something inside of me opened up and, and um, then on television, I'd see things like, you know, we're going way back. I'm an old guy. And yeah. <laughs> there'd be things like the, what was it called? The American Sportsman, I think, oh, where yeah. they fly fish once in a while. Yep. And I went, oh, yeah, I, I want to do that. And, hmm. and so I pretty much taught myself. I, I read a lot of books. I often in class would, uh, you know, fly fishing books back then were typically small, and, and my textbooks were kind of big, so I could <laughs> slide the fly fishing book inside the textbook and look like I was reading all through class. Nice. And uh, so I read a lot of fly, fly fishing and fly tying books while attending my classes in, in junior high and high school and even grade school. Yeah. And uh, didn't learn much about anything else, but I learned a lot about fly fishing and fly tying. And they thought I was very studious and couldn't figure out why my grades were the way they were. But um, And that's it. I, I really just kind of taught myself. And then we were living, uh, My I, I grew up on Mercer Island, which was not a wealthy place to live when my parents moved there, but it became that. And and I'd fish in Lake Washington a lot with a bobber and a worm and a spinner and, you know, just go down and find a place and start fishing. And, and then when I got a little bit older, uh, my dad would start taking me and off, usually a friend out to somewhere in the, in the uh, you know, over east in the mountains and the Cascades mm-hmm. to fish for trout in a lake or in a creek or a river or something. And so that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. So you pretty much... Yeah, I mean, you got started at an early age and were totally consumed and, um, you know, hiding it in class and stuff. That's always, I, I talk to a few people. That, you know, I talk to both. I talk to people here that have, you know, literally just got into it recently and they just fully had the passion and just, you know, and they got themselves at a higher level. And then talk to people like yourself who have been doing, doing it their whole lives. How did you get into, was it just an easy transition into to writing and, and all that, or did you have a history there? How did uh, you get to where you have 18 books published? Oh, well, I mean, I guess the obvious answer is just I spent a lot of time writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the only way you're going to do it, right? writing and rewriting and rewriting and trying to trying to bring your your instruction up to a high level and your prose up to a high level, and, you know, that's what I've always tried to do. Um, but actually, I, I always enjoyed writing. It was something I always, I don't know, want to say excelled at, but I just, you know, it, it, I always did really well and, and got a lot of support from the time I was a little kid and, and really enjoyed it and read quite a lot. And so it was kind of a natural because I also, when I was a kid guy, to sound like I'm trying to sell myself to somebody, but... <laughs> I guess I'll, I, I'm just trying to be honest, but I mean, everybody, let, let me put it this way. Everybody has skills and gifts and aptitudes and, and that doesn't mean mine are more important than anybody else's, but I'm right now I'm just talking about mine. So I <clears throat> just always had a, a love for fine handwork, you know, making model cars and, mm-hmm. and, uh, drawing and uh, all that stuff. It just kind of came naturally to me. So fly tying came kind of naturally, naturally to me. Which is not to say that it wasn't challenging and, and hasn't often been because it has. Um, but you know, still, it was one of my one of my aptitudes. Mm-hmm. And you've been fly tying for about as long as you've been fishing. Or you started? <laughs> no, before. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, when I started fishing, I mean, you know, you're going back to the to the early '60s when I started fishing. Maybe even wow, maybe even before that. Maybe the '50s. I was born in '51. Okay, but. Um, you know, back then, it was real common to not just be a fly fisher. 
you know, to be to fish spinning gear when that seemed appropriate and to fish a fly when that seemed appropriate. Mm-hmm. And even into my early twenties, I just kind of it, it, I was still occasionally picking up a spinning rod for certain things like bass, but uh, but I would I would fish. Uh, I loved fly fishing. I think I always loved that most of all. But if I wasn't catching a fish, I would grab a spinning rod yep. because that was real common back then. And but eventually, I in my early twenties, I just pretty much quit every other type of fishing except fly fishing. And now I forget what the question was. Oh, uh, well, you, you, yeah, you got me thinking about. Um... I was just, as you were talking, I kind of forgot, lost my train of thought too. I was thinking about, uh, Jim Teeny, who we had on in episode five on our uh, season, on our, uh, season one with all the steelhead guests. And he kind of had a similar thing. It sounds like what you're talking about where he kind of did a little bit of everything. And then at some point he, he kind of got into his first steelhead and he just said to himself, you know what, I'm, I'm never going to go back to any of the gear fishing again. It's going to be, it's going to be all steelhead for the rest of my life. And, you know, he's pretty much, I think he's done that. And now he's caught a bunch of different species on, you know, on his stuff. But is that, so is that the same for you? You pretty much, you kind of went all into fly fishing and then why going all into it like that? What, what do you think, um, you know, is the reason that a lot of people do that? Why do you think they, they don't go both ways nowadays? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, every time something, a, a change that big happens, in, in my opinion, you get good and bad. I think one of the things I don't like is that there's a little bit of a tendency for, for fly fishermen and all other kinds of fishermen to sort of mistrust each other or, you know, they're just, just not the closeness there used to be. And I think that's mm-hmm. unfortunate because, we're all fishermen, and you know, some, if there was a while there where fly fishermen was saying, "Well, I'm, I've got it figured out because I'm doing catch practice and catch and release." But boy, that's really common among the bass fishermen now, and and all kinds of fishermen. So you know, that's gone. But, um, huh? Well, I think you know, for me, it's just that I fly fishing was so intriguing and charming and complex and and intricate at times and just those things just appealed to me plus tying flies as i say i i never finished my answer on that but i started tying flies i can never remember my guess because i don't really know but i think it was around nine or ten or something maybe 11 even and then i tied for a couple years before i had the guts to try a fly because i really didn't think the fish around here would take one which turned out they did Mm -hmm. Hmm. yeah so i guess more oh go ahead i'm sorry yeah, no, I was going to say, it, yeah, just, I mean, I think it's just that, again, you get into something, and then, and again, I'll bring it back to the steelhead analogy. We had a lot of people talk about that, where they gear fish for a long time, and then they just picked it up, and fly fishing was just kind of that next level of, I don't know what it, what it is exactly about it, but it it kind of, I think, just takes you to that next level. So I, I think probably most people on this, uh, listen to this, will understand that and probably are in a similar situation. I was going to talk a little bit about more about the books um, that you published, but before I do, I was hoping you can maybe tell us about either maybe the last fishing trip you were on or maybe one of your favorite places to fish as far as trout and streams, um, and then talk a little bit about how maybe you catch fish there. Sure. Um my last trip was about a week and a half ago, and uh, we're going to be leaving soon for three weeks in Montana. But, you know, this year, there's just a super abundance of water, so streams are not relevant yet. And I'm hoping they will be by the time we get to Montana. But our our last trip, uh, Carol and I and a couple of friends went to uh, north-central Washington to fish the lakes. And, and there are a lot of lakes up there, and they're very rich, and it was great. We caught trout we saw damselfly hatches mayfly hatches and we also caught uh, oh gosh 
smallmouth bass, uh, perch, crappie, bluegill. Wow. <laughs> I mean, just kind of everything. It was it was a fun trip, but uh, I'm ready to fish a stream. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So and, and as far as a favorite? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, go ahead. Uh, if you have a favorite uh, stream that you, you kind of comes to mind. That's tough, you know. It, it's always changing, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had a great trip to the Bitterroot uh, last fall, and so that's high on my list. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lock saw is beautiful and, and has tons of access, and, and so I really enjoyed that, the lock saw in Idaho. And, mm-hmm. But, boy, <laughs> that's tough. I mean, I, I even if you just take streams, I mean, I'm kind of a generalist in, in a freshwater way. I, I love bass both basses, trout, and panfish, and all that stuff. Yeah. And I even fish for sea-run cutthroat here at home. But um, as far as even trout streams, I I'm still love the water that I learned to fly fish on, which was uh, creeks. And uh, I also am fascinated by spring creeks. And uh, it just, you know, <laughs> there's just too much to do out there, but yeah, I try. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you. So on the Locksaw, and you fished the Locksaw before? Oh yeah. Yeah. What's the, uh, maybe you can describe, you know, if somebody's going in and I've been by the locks, I've driven by there on my way to Montana too, a number of times I've actually, have I fished? I don't even know if I fished it, but, uh, definitely been by there. What, what, uh, maybe you can run us down, like how, how you catch fish on the locks on which species you're getting into and whether you're, you know, dries or nymphs or wet flies or whatever. Oh, okay. Well, I can use the Loxaw as an example because there really are so many, you know, Idaho, in fact, alone has so many really good cutthroat streams like the St. Joe and, oh, I'm trying to think of some of them, Kelly Creek, you know, um, both of which I've fished. I fished the St. Joe and eh, a fair amount, but Loxaw more than those those two. Oh, and the North Fork of the Coeur d'Alene. But um, I guess, well, like the Loxaw is interesting because you know, cutthroats, this is just my own observation. I've never read this anywhere, but they just seem really, um, not anadromous. Um, they just seem to migrate a lot. You know, they'll move into a stream in the spring when it thaws and then they'll completely vacate it in the fall when it freezes up and Mm -hmm. they'll go way the heck up it. And I think the lock saw is like that too. So if conditions aren't good, there aren't a lot of fish in there. And if conditions are good, then they'll just swarm in and kind of fill it up, Mm -hmm. which is something I've seen in smallmouth bass, but that's getting off the subject. Mm -hmm. Um, So the lock saw, some of it's timing. I've, I've fished it in July in August and in September and October and it can be tricky any of those times. The fish can tend to bunch up, so you're you're covering a lot of water until you find fish, and then sometimes you find a lot of fish. Uh, it's all cutthroats. Um, it's I don't think it's quite as consistent as it used to be since they've reestablished. And this is my understanding. This is something I also I haven't investigated at, a, at any length, but I think that the salmon runs and maybe steelhead have been re reestablished in that river, and that's oh, changed sure. the trout fishing. Yeah. But, uh, you know, cutthroats, um, I, I mean, I could talk an hour about cutthroats, yeah. uh, West Slope cutthroats, because sure. I think they're fascinating. Um, people like to talk about cutthroats being gullible and, and naive and just plain dumb. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> Not in these days of catch and release. Yep. So on the Locksaw, for example, I mean, that that's not a heavily fished stream. So usually the cutthroats are pretty agreeable. I've seen them. Ah, one, I remember an evening rise during a heat spell, and when, when if I didn't put on a size 22 uh, midge merger, I was not going to catch fish, and that's cutthroats. 
But I've seen that many times with cutthroat, especially these days, you know, the last 10, even 15 years with all the catch and release, uh, North Fork of the Coeur d'Alene gets hit a lot. Those cutthroats get pretty smart. Mm-hmm. And they'll just, you know, they'll make you think they're a brown trout in a spring creek sometimes. They'll oh, sit there and rise right in front of you, and you you keep going smaller and trying to figure out what they want and going to finer tippets, and then finally you start hooking them. Yeah, yeah. So it's mostly, you know, being cutthroats, they also love to come to the surface. So on the lock sides, uh-huh. it's normally dry flies for me. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I've, I fished, uh, oh, quite a while ago, I fished the, um, oh, gosh, we were in we were in deep in one of the wilderness areas and got into some, Ooh. some uh, yeah, some west slope. And they were, yeah, it was amazing. It was all dry. That was the whole thing, just floating down, fishing dries. And uh, I guess that was, I think that was the middle fork of the salmon on that trip. And, Ooh, uh, yeah. But no, so, so yeah, so if you were, you know, somebody's driving up that road for their first time cruising up, uh, you know, and they're like the lock saws right along their, their edge, if, you know, how would you, you know, coach them into maybe here, tell them how to get into fish? So the first thing might be to have some dries, any other tips that you might tell them as far as, you know, tactics or, you know, what, which flies to use, how to fish, are you, are you kind of mostly, are you having to be pretty stealthy on these fish, you know, fishing under cover, under trees? Maybe maybe a little more uh, detail just on how you get into fish there. And and maybe a little bit also on the sizes of fish that you're getting into. Sure. Well, do you want me to limit it to the loxa or just to fishing any stream? Yeah, you know, I think, um, I don't know, I mean, I think the loxa is kind of interesting, but maybe you can li- limit it to just uh, West Slope cutties in general, cutthroat. Oh, okay. Yeah. That sounds reasonable. Um. Well, I think the most important thing any fisherman can do right off the bat is to just turn on your brain and open your eyes and 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 turn off well, I don't know if I want you to turn off your intellect, but mm-hmm. but basically, you know, open your mind. Um because a lot of people go in and they say, well, Skip or somebody else said I should go in and throw a Royal Wolf size 12, you know, (laughs) and that may not be what's happening that day, regardless of who said what. And and a a lot of times what's going on will be right in front of the fishermen and they won't see it. They've got uh, they've got sort of mentally created blinders on. And even though it's right in front of their eyes, they don't respond to it or recognize it. And uh, I think that's the first thing. And, And that's probably the most important thing if you were going up. Any, any trout stream, including cutthroat streams, would be to just open your eyes and your mind and really pay attention and be thoughtful. And, and uh, that's, that's going to be half of being successful right there, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm approaching, especially if I'm approaching new water, um, I, you know, I'm, uh, again, and it's gonna, everything I say is probably going to keep going back to being observant, but mm-hmm. I would look for rises. I would look for hatching insects. If I saw no hatching insects and no rises, then there is that factor with cutthroats that they're kind of crazy. They they will go for a dry fly sometimes and ignore nymphs hmm. that are right in front of their nose, and they'll go straight up through eight feet of water and take a dry. Yeah. And it seems crazy because they must feed on nymphs most of the time. Mm-hmm. Then other times they'll go crazy on nymphs. They're they're kind of kind of a nutso fish, but I love them. Mm-hmm. And so I if if I weren't you know it's. It's it's being observant, but also kind of being a, a detective, I like to call it, because you're looking at these clues, and no fish rising and no bugs on the water suggests that you should either try uh, some kind of fly that's going to just draw them up, like a decent-sized fly, like a 14, or, or even a big fly, like a, like a size 8 Chernobyl, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, 
or an attractor fly, which sometimes attractor flies will, uh, I believe, outfish uh, imitative flies by quite a mm-hmm. by a real significant margin. Um, and then if that doesn't work, then I would try fishing a nymph. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and as far as water, where those uh, west slopes are going to be holding in, it's going to be kind of similar to the same types of water you might find rainbow trout in, just anything with cover and boulders or places they can hide get and get food? I would say, and, and I'm no expert on, on rainbows or cutthroats, but I've fished for, I've caught an awful lot of them. And so I, for whatever, for whatever that's worth, um, my experience has been that rainbows do seem to like quicker water than cutthroats. Um, you know, it's funny because rainbows, which can thrive in a lake where there's no current or in Henry's fork of the snake where there's very little current, if there's plenty of current, they tend to like it more than the other three common trouts in North America. That's been my experience. The brown, the uh, brook, and which is really a char, but we, you know, we treat it as a trout. The brown, the brook, and the uh, cutthroat tend to like a little lazier water than the rainbow on the whole, especially the brown. I find. But then I've caught I've caught browns in just screaming water that I didn't think any rainbow would ever <laughs> would ever hold in. You know, yep. uh, I remember this little creek in Colorado. I I looked at this water and I thought no. <laughs> and then I dropped my nymph in there and sure enough I hooked a brown and then I hooked another brown. Wow. And I've seen that in Montana. I've seen that other places. So you know you that's really I think an important thing for anglers is don't get caught up in rules because fish and insects and the fishing don't follow rules. They don't care about rules. I mean, the rules are generally right, but you know, they can be really wrong. Sure. Um, that makes sense. And you know, that's, that's good stuff. I was thinking a little bit, you know, thinking back to your books and stuff. And if, you know, those are good tips for people, you know, thinking about going out in a, a new area. Are there any books that you have out there that you think are, I mean, you're most known for and, you know, uh, potentially something that might, you think one that might help somebody in this situation fishing a, a trout stream um, like the Locksaw? Yeah, I've got, uh, I would say, three of them. I'm looking at them right now. Um, I did two books with Dave Hughes and Rick Hayfley. One is called Tactics for Trout. The other is called Seasons for Trout. And then for a beginner, I have a book called um, Survival Guide for Beginning Fly Anglers, mm-hmm. which includes a couple of DVDs in it that are you know, which was shot directly for the book. And that one is, of course, an introduction to fly fishing, but it also goes through four different specific kinds of fly fishing, and one of them is trout in rivers. Mm-hmm. And so I would say those three, more than anything, because a lot of my books are fly tying books. Okay. And then I have Morrison Chan on fly fishing trout lakes, which is strictly about lakes. Yep. So I would say those three. Okay. Okay, and, and you mentioned a few uh, pretty big name uh uh, co-authors there and I've, I've talked to rick and he's going to be on the show and i'm hoping to get dave on as well what what have you you know i guess have you've published some stuff on your own and with co-authors what what has been the difference there and what have you learned from that experience working with other folks hmm. well it was easier because i only had to write a third as much <laughs> <laughs> and provide a third as many it, photographs is that pretty much how you do it you just separate the books like you'll take these chapters and these guys take the you know rick takes the etymology and you just split it up that way and then come together that's what we did yeah yeah okay. and so it was really pretty easy and, and dave and rick are very reasonable professional guys so i tried to be too okay and that's that made it really quite it got a lot of fun actually yeah 
Okay. And, and what was your first, uh, your first publication, if you remember that and what, and what, uh, maybe you can take us back to that moment of when, I don't know if your first one was the most memorable or, or whatever one had the most impact on you, what, what that felt like in that, that whole process. Well, my first book, and I remember it well, I still have a copy or two around the house, um, which it's out of print. It was published. It was the one book that I published with one of Nick Lyons' companies. He's had a lot of different names for his companies, but publishing houses. But um, it was called The Custom Graphite Fly Rod. Hmm. And it came out in, I believe, 89. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason I did that book was because for the previous 10 years, I had made my living designing and building graphite and fiberglass fly rods. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. Hardly anybody remembers that. Uh Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I spent 10 years trying to figure, I mean, I was actually designing the shafts. I was sending the patterns for the graphite sheeting, you know, for the way it was cut. And I was selecting the mandrel and the tack point and all that stuff. And I was making my ferrules and then I was coating the rods by hand with a, with a finish. And yeah, I mean, I was, I was up to my ears in it and I loved it for 10 years and then Uh I was done with it. Oh, really? So how, how did you get into that? I mean, I guess you were into fly fishing pretty heavily. What, what got you into more of the, the product type stuff and then, and then what got you out of it? Well, I think the, to answer your last question first, I would say what got me out of it is I just got to this point one day where I went, well, I've done everything I wanted to do with that. Now what? And then that was easy to answer because I'd already had this rebirth of, of fascination with fly tying. And I was, when I wasn't building rods, I was tying and trying not to let sleep get in the way of those things. So, um, I was really up to my ears, but, um, I, I, when I was a kid, I, you know, as I say, I, I always had a, a love of, of fine handwork, and that was rod building. So as a kid, I had built some fly rods, and then I went on to other stuff like kids do. And then uh, in my late 20s, I just, you know, realized I could build another rod, and I did. And I went, oh, i got to do this all the time. So mm-hmm. that's, that's what I did. And then I started hanging out with a guy. Well, not really hanging out, but, I mean, I was calling him far too often down in uh, – uh, Pasadena, California, named Russ Peak, and uh, Russ was famous for building originally fiberglass rods, and then later graphite, and then some combination rods that were graphite, fiberglass, boron, graphite. And he would do the same thing that I ended up doing, which is designing the rod shafts to fit each uh, customer. So if you called him, you'd be on the phone with him for forty minutes or a half hour. He would ask you a lot of questions, and then you would get your rod three or six months later, whatever you know the backup wait time was. And if all went well, the rod would be just what you were looking for. It would have, it would, you know, if you wanted to throw a streamer a long way and you had this sort of casting style and there were certain rods you liked and didn't like, that would all go into the design of the rod. So it was really intriguing for me. Yeah. And I, I loved it. And then I didn't love it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess that uh, that happened. What, what do you think it's, uh, you know, back then compared to nowadays with the rods i mean are are there i guess the companies now have a lot more models and stuff but it seems like that was that was fairly unique um does it custom designing actual rods is that something uh, you know how, how did that uh, as far as the industry how did that change did you stay with it and see how that moved into currently what we have today 
Well, I haven't kept, you know, back then I used to try fish all kinds of rods, or not fish, but at least cast all kinds of rods from manufacturers and try to see what they were doing and what I liked and didn't like. I can't say I do that so much today. I'm I'm with TFO um, on their pro staff, and I, okay. I just fish TFO stuff. Once in a while I put my hand on something else just to compare, but... Um, so I can't say I've kept up with the industry at all. You know, I yeah. kind of when I was done with it, I backed out sure. to a large degree. But uh, some things really have changed um, a lot. Yeah. I mean, I was always a big fan of four-piece rods because, as Russ Peak once told me, said you build a good four-piece rod with these contemporary ferrules, you can't tell it from a two-piece, but it's way easier to get around with. And I agreed, and I found the same thing. I'd build identical rods, one four-piece, one two-piece, you know, take the same shafts, cut in a ferrule. And I couldn't, you know, I really couldn't tell a difference even with all that all that work I did on rods to mm-hmm. try to become very sensitive to it. So that's changed because now, geez, it's, it's almost hard to find a two-piece rod. You know, yeah. it seems like everything's four-piece. That's right. And I think that's great. Um, I think it's interesting that glass is making a sort of a mild recovery. Mm-hmm. I always thought glass was pretty cool. I built a lot of gla- glass rods before I got into graphite, and then I did both. But mm. glass, um, you know, it's certainly it's heavier than graphite, and it it's uh, it doesn't have that. It doesn't get to that point in a cast where it sort of seizes up and and provides this additional power. But for some kinds of fishing, it's nice not to have the rod do that. Um, You know, shorter distances, small water, that kind of thing. That's right. That's right, yeah. uh, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that I was talking to to Davey Watton on a recent... um, uh, interview and he was mentioning that you know kind of that same lines he and I'm not sure if he uses glass or if he sticks with graphite but he was you know saying uh, the perfect rod for fishing you know um, kind of the wet fly fishing you know which is a technique that's not you know done that much he, he was saying that that kind of more of a slower action rod is better than the fast fast action I guess so with a glass you're going to get more of that that's more typical yeah although I think I think there is one thing I've noticed that. You know, as I said, I was designing the rod action, and so I'm I'm real familiar with that in both glass and graphite. And there are inherent tendencies in the different materials, but at the same time, you could build a very and and I have built a very stiff, fast action rod where almost all the whole rod was just casting off the mm-hmm. upper part of the tip out of glass, oh. and you can build a really slow, lazy rod out of graphite, and it all just depends on diameters and wall thickness and all that stuff. Yeah. And they would have a different feel, even if you built them with the same action at the same length, because the, the materials are different. But um, this, the idea that glass is just always going to be a slow rod, it's its just not even close to true, but yeah. it's, it's an idea that I guess is kind of caught on. Gotcha. So why do you think glass? I mean, what, what is the advantage of, of glass over graphite? Well, I don't know these days, and I, but it used to be stronger for starters. Mm. It was harder to break, harder mm-hmm. to damage. But I think if you're in a, let's, let's say you're on a, a small stream or, or you're fishing fairly close water, you know, where the fish is 20 feet away or something, um, glass just has that relaxed feel that and loads under its own weight partly because it is heavier than graphite. So, you know, even without a line, you can feel that it's loading itself partly. And so when you're making those short casts, it actually helps you load the rod, the, the material itself. Plus, it doesn't have, as I, as I was saying, that, that tendency to sort of punch in this extra power when you, when you push it. And if you're making short casts and you're trying to do delicate presentations on short casts, either or both, 
um, glass starts to have some possible advantages. But at the end of the day, what really matters, I think, in, in those terms is what suits you, what, what makes you feel good. Because I, I really think that rod length, rod action, rod feel, rod material, all that stuff is sort of like, well, it's kind of like going into a restaurant and getting a big menu. And if you get mm. 10 people at the table, probably everybody's going to order something a little up to a lot different. Yeah. And they're all going to be right. You know, that's what suits them. That's what tastes right. And with, with rods, if it suits you, then it's good. Yep. Yep. No, that makes, uh, that makes total sense. Uh, yeah. I want to jump into a little bit on, on flight tying. Cause I know we, you know, you have a lot of information out there and, and books and things like that. I was hoping I, I can't remember if I was reading this, um, the, uh, you had a, a light Cahill, uh, cage fight back in the day. Is that, <laughs> is that uh, maybe you could explain the, you know, what, what that's all about. And, uh, and then we can get into some tips and things like that. Oh Yeah. Well, that was a comment I made when I sent you that email. I've, that's oh, something that's right. I've never written. Yeah, I've never written that before. Oh, but cool. He, well, it was just a way of describing the way that I went after the light Cahill. I've, when I when I pick when something intrigues me, you know, fly tying, rod building, fly fishing, and some other things in my life, um, I just don't know how to do it halfway. You know, it's just it's full throttle right off the bat. And at one point, I was I was kind of when I was sending my email, I was trying to describe to you my how I've my my career in fly tying and how how I've kind of responded to it but um yeah I went through a period where I just I I thought and I still have to admit I think the light keel is a gorgeous dry fly traditional dry fly probably my favorite of all the traditional dry flies and um this is a long time ago this break 20 years ago but I just decided I was going to beat that thing I was going to make I was going to learn how to tie the best possible light keel I could tie and I was tying it every day for or nearly every day for i'm going to guess three to six months Mm -hmm. and just trying to work out everything and and the hardest part of all was probably the those uh, lemon wood duck wings they are really tricky to get flat and and even and Mm -hmm. and neatly uh neatly uh, defined and so i i worked at it and worked at it and worked at it and worked at it and it was really exciting to try to Mm -hmm. bring that fly up to the as far as I could personally bring it, and that's my cage fight with the cool. <laughs> with the well, light cage. Can we see uh, some <laughs> uh, some uh, pictures of, of that of that pattern in in your books or online? Uh, or oh yeah, yeah. Now I'm trying to think. I've, um, I wonder it might be in tactics for trout or seasons for trout. There might be one that I've tied. Um, I know there's. I'm almost sure there's one that I've tied in a tr- book called. Trout Flies for Rivers, which is sort of a pattern book, but with tying instructions for certain uh, unusual steps. And I think, and I know there's, that I tied it step by step in a book that's now out of print, out of print called uh, The Art of Tying the Dry Fly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I'll, I'll provide that. This show is going to be at uh, wetflyswing.com slash 36, and I'll have uh, show notes for everything. Some of the stuff we're talking about here, and I'll, I'll look up uh, some links and provide links for some of this stuff that I can find and including your books and things like that. But uh, yeah, that, that's pretty good. I think that's the way to do it. You know, with, with tying flies, it's kind of like casting or anything else. You just have to practice and, and, you know, just keep going for it and, you know, fly tying. Yeah. Those wings and all that stuff. That's, that's not an easy thing to do for sure. No, not if you're trying to take that stuff to a really high level. 
Yeah. Not for me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a, do you have like a, a fly tying tip, uh, maybe something specific to that pattern or just generally that would help somebody who's getting into fly tying? You know, honestly, I could probably write a book of fly tying tips. No I just, I've had my, yeah. my brain. So my life so immersed in fly tying for so much of it. But, um, you know, I think it, I, I often tell people that when I do a clinic or a workshop somewhere, um, that, if there's one thing, just one, if I had to give people one piece of advice, it would be this. Um, and you can put it any way you want, but basically, if there's a thread head on the fly, and most flies, as I'm sure you know, have thread heads, whether they're streamers or nymphs or dry flies, leave room for the head. Yeah. Because what a lot of tires do, and what I did when I was younger, because um, as I say, I've been tying since I was a small kid, um, is to build everything up right up to the eye and then try to squeeze in yeah. a thread head and there's no place to put it. So when there's no place to put it, it ends up oversized, it ends up ugly, it ends up difficult to make, and it ends up uh, kind of fragile. So if you leave about an eye, about a hook eye length of shank behind the eye for the thread head, you're set. You've got, I mean, it's going to go faster it's going to be neater. It's going to be stronger and look better. Well, neater look better, same thing. But anyway, it's it's all advantages, and you don't even have to actually do anything. You have to just not do something, and that's mm-hmm. not fill in that space. Not, not cramp yourself. Yeah, they, I was thinking of a, a video. Uh, Kelly Gallup, I think, had a video on basically talking about that same thing, how to avoid you know getting too close. And he, yeah, he said the same thing. Basically, you, you kind of wrap a you know, some thread around this space where, where, you know, you don't go past and that's the thing. So you don't tie any materials past that part on the hook shank until the end of the fly. But, um, yeah, no, that's a, that's a good tip. I, you know, I think fly proportions are another big struggle for a lot of people. And I, I get those questions all the time about, you know, and you see flies just online. I mean, there's so many flies on Instagram and things like that. And you can just tell right away somebody who's new because, proportions are tough do you you have a, a fly proportions chart i'm not sure is that in a book maybe you can explain a little bit about how that might help somebody who's struggling with proportions well you know i did make a fly proportion chart and it was covered with a with a pla- clear plastic so you know that it would last a long time and mm-hmm. and i i published that with frank amato publications um and it did well but then slowed down and they decided not to reprint it oh, so okay. it's not around okay. unfortunately but um, there was one. <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I would probably, yeah, I'll have to take, it. I'm not even sure if I've seen that uh, over the years. I, I, I may have and not even known it was, it was your thing, but, uh, okay. So w- what about proportions? Do you have any, any tips there on? I mean, that's kind of a tough one for people. Like as far as just, you know, you got this fly, I guess you can imitate, find a pattern you want to tie and try to tie as close to that as possible. But anything else you think of that can help somebody struggling there? Uh, there is. And and I think this is I really believe this, and I've I've taught a lot of beginning fly tires, uh, especially friends and family, but well, actually all over the place. <laughs> and the thing that I find with with new fly tires is that they don't. I think the big problem is that they don't take proportions seriously enough, and they they don't make them. They don't recognize the importance of them because a fly that's tied with say too much hackle or overlong hackle you might not be able to hook very many fish because it kind of guards the hook point from getting into the fish. Uh, or it might not, if, if the hackle's too short, it might not make, it might not support the fly enough so that it, it's 
floats as well as it should. Um, if you get your proportions off too much, the fish will come up and look at it and they'll go, that does not look like a caddisfly to me. And that's what I'm eating, you know, because with trout, especially when they lock onto something, they lock on, as you know, you know, we call it selectivity and it's real, but, um, I do find that, um, you know, you'll show, you'll show, and this is, I probably did this too. I don't, in fact, I know I did at least to some degree because I've got some of those old flies. So it's not like I'm superior when I say this, I've done, I've been through this. But um, beginners tend to go, well, that looks about right, or or I think that should be right, and it doesn't matter if you know. Make sure it's right. Use your scissors to measure. You know, if it's supposed to be the length of the shank, don't make it the length of the full hook, yeah. whether it's wings or tails. Use your scissors um, to to you know get the blades. Let's say you're, it's, the wings are supposed to be the length of the shank. Uh, hold the scissors up and pinch them so they're not going to move, and then get the tips so that they one one tip is at the one end of the shank and the other's at the other end, and then hold them up and measure that wing. And if you got it wrong, then you know you can trim it or you can start over or you can just ignore it and and be more careful or or get it do do better on the next one. But I think really that beginners are are too lax about proportions, and proportions are really are important. Yeah. Yeah, they are. That's uh, that's probably the difference. I mean, it doesn't always make you know the um, you know the outcome isn't always dependent on that. But yeah, I think it, it is pretty important. Obviously, cool. So uh, yeah, we we talked a little bit about uh, you know uh, Rick Kafley and some other folks. Are there any other people you know throughout your um, history and you know doing? Then how many years have you been? Uh, I guess when did you have your first book? You said it was in the eighties. It was published. Yeah, I think it was eighty nine. Okay. And I'd been I'd been making a living since 1980 building rods. So oh, okay. I've been in the business since, since about 80 or 81. Yeah, yeah, you've been in a long time. Okay. And are there yeah. any anybody that sticks out along the way that kind of mentors that helped you uh, kind of get get to where you're at, or you know, what was that process like? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, indirectly, Roderick Haig Brown, I think, taught me to love fishing and be fascinated by it more than anybody ever did. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He, yeah. He's been gone for a long time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But for your for your listeners, he, he was a uh, writer, fly fishing writer, who lived on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, which is not terribly far from where I live. And um, he wrote a, a series of what I consider brilliant books. They're just, they just, I, I still read them all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been reading them since I was about 11. Mm-hmm. Um, I own all the, all the standard fishing books that he wrote and some others as well. Um, a River Never Sleeps is his masterwork. I okay. think most would agree. And anyway, he wrote about fishing in that area. He also wrote about his childhood in England, fishing over there. And sometimes it gets pretty funny, but he's a wonderful writer, I think, and uh, and just had this incredible fascination with fish and with fishing. And um, and I met him a couple times, in fact, oh, yeah. uh, which was a big thrill for me. Yeah, when I was just really young, I met him chatted with him a little bit. I was, I was so starstruck. I could hardly say a word, but that didn't matter. I could shake his hand, go yeah. in his house, you know? Oh, cool. Um, and then directly, um, I mean, some of the influences that I, uh, like, I know Dave Whitlock now, you know, we, we yeah. communicate every once in a while, but, but he was really a hero of mine. And, mm. and, uh, I never met Lee Wolf, but he certainly had an, uh, you know, an effect. And, and, uh, later on Al Troth, certainly and and i did meet al in fact i've got some of his flies here mm-hmm. um lefty cray was actually a huge help mm-hmm. to me in getting started in this business i mm-hmm. i had he he just kind of coached me really and so 
you know, I was heartbroken when he died, although certainly, you know, good for you, Lefty, you lived a yeah. long time. Yeah. And I got an email from him when he was around 90 that he had some fishing trips planned. So, oh, wow. you know, he got to fish for an amazingly yeah. long time and, and good for him. So he was, he was wonderful to me. And, and, uh, I just, I just thought the world of Lefty yeah. and Russ Peak, as I mentioned earlier in rods uh-huh. and, uh, Boy, there. Are, I mean, there are a lot of. I know a lot of people in the biz these yeah. days. I, I know John Girock a little bit, oh, really? and I know his. Yeah, a little bit, and I I know his buddy uh, Ed Engel uh, fairly well because we we crossed paths at shows, mm-hmm. you know, doing shows to, mm-hmm. at different times in the east and the west, all over the place, and end up going out to dinner a few times. And uh, you know, the list just goes on. Jack Dennis. I mean, yeah. You know, all these all sure. these big guys in the in the industry and and. You know, this is, if you don't mind my veering off on yeah, another subject. Yeah, for sure. Um, I am thrilled with the um, this wave of women coming into fly fishing that seems to be happening right mm-hmm. now. Um, partly through Carol and partly just through the business, I've, I've met a lot of the, the the newbies, you know, the new, not newbies, but the, the women who are, are part of, who are really behind this wave. That's right. Um, you know, younger women and... All the ones that I know are just sweethearts, and I think that's great. I mean, they're just, and they're, you know, really sharp fishermen. Yeah. No question about it. There's, they, they need, you know, apologize to nobody there. No, no. Um, I, I and think, I think it's great. I, I'm yeah. just really pleased to see women coming in, and I'm also really pleased to see that the, the figureheads of this movement are, are just good people and excellent fly fishers. Yeah. No, I think I think you're right on that. That hits home for me. I mean, we've talked about this on the show a little bit, but I have two little girls, and you know, so women, uh, you know, it's really important for me to, and, and I think not only for myself, but just the you know, fly fishing itself. It's such a, you know, it's such a white male sort of at least the history, you know, of the, of the sport or whatever, you know, you know, mm-hmm. you call it and. Yeah, I think it's important to, to keep this thing growing, and I think you know there's all sorts of reasons why we want it to keep growing, but um, you know, getting more women, and not only women, but just diversity of other you know uh, other people from around the world and ethnicities and all that stuff is important. So, you know, I, I appreciate. I, I did notice that um, you know you um, you know Carol has been a big part of you know where you are at and. I, um, you know, I don't know the whole story there, but it sounds like you got a pretty, pretty amazing woman there yourself that's helped you, you know, do what you, what you've been able to do throughout your life. I am lucky. Uh, you know, when I met Carol, I had come to the point, uh, I'd, I'd had one failed marriage and, and, uh, you know, other relationships. And, and I just was to the point where I thought if I, if I find somebody I can build a marriage with, uh, then if they don't fly fish, that's all right. We'll have lots of other stuff. And that's the way I felt about Carol. And she had never really fly fished and but she really took to it i mean these days it's it's sometimes it's me trying to drag her off the water instead of the other way around which hmm. is pretty amazing to me because i haven't had that in a relationship before but yeah. uh yeah we've been married and we just 20 what is it 27 years it'll be this year that's awesome and uh we fished a lot and we work together too i mean she she is the photographer for my books she's she's the oh. illustrator for my books and she's starting to actually sell quite a bit of her illustrations and and some of her photography on her own that's that's getting going with her etsy site and oh yeah yeah so i mean you know that's that's a lot of being involved with another person you you sleep with them you vacation with them you fish with them you work with them you know and and so that's that's challenging but it's in general i think it's a gift yeah 
Yeah, no, that's that, that is huge. That sounds and and she's a good fly fisher too. I mean, yeah, I I I guess a little tiny part of me feels a little bit overwhelmed when she outfishes me, <laughs> but most of mostly I just feel proud of her. Yeah, and, she, and uh, yeah, she does. She's a fine caster and she's a very good fly fisher and and uh, she picks out things that I miss. So. Probably probably a good fly tire as well. She has a good fly tire, yeah. And if she decided she really wanted to do more of it, she'd she'd get really good fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. she's already quite good. Yeah, yeah, totally. What what are I was kind of going to get into some more uh, kind of fishing tips. Do you think you know if you got somebody new? You know, my girls are pretty young. Any any tips to you know help them? Uh, well, I mean, I guess everybody. I, I I've had them casting and tying a little bit already, but um, you know to help somebody you know, kind of get into it a little faster or, or enjoy it a little more? What, what would you say to, you know, when you've got a couple of little kids to get them going? You know, I, I would say the same thing that I would say to anybody trying to get a beginner started in this sport. And that is when you, when you get them to the point where you take them out fishing is get them into fish. Yeah. And, you know, we, I think sometimes experienced fly fishers will will think well i want to impress them with a big fish and then they'll go someplace where there are a few big fish and they don't catch anything and they're just casting all day and they go i don't like this but if you take them somewhere where they're pumpkin seed sunfish Mm. and every second cast you get a fish i i think this is just my perspective but i think they'll come out of it thrilled yeah and they won't care that the fish are three inches or five inches or something that doesn't matter they cast a fly and they had a fish take and they felt the fish and they're just, you know, they're raring to go. So, I mean, yeah. if if, there, if there's going to be any hope of converting somebody into fly fishing, I think getting them into fish is the key. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So as far as, you know, if they are out there, um, you know, eventually you got somebody that, you know, is fishing for trout or whatever. We talked a little bit about tips and things like that. Do you have any other uh, fly fishing tips you might tell somebody, you know, that's trying to get into some trout just kind of generally or anything uh, specifically you, you think about, or, I mean, you don't do, and you've never done any guiding or has that been something you've gotten into? No, no, I'm not tough enough. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I, that's, I, that's I, I know a lot of guides yeah. and I, I've fished with, with a lot of guides and I just, you know, when you chat with them, you find out how, how have, difficult what they do is. I, I mean, have you guided? Yeah, I've done a little bit. I've done a little bit of it. And I think it, you know, what I feel about guiding, I've, I've interviewed a lot of guides on here. Um, you know, already. And, you know, the thing about guides is I think that it's almost like you're born for it. You know, I know like yep. uh, I was talking to Davey Watton and he's still guiding. I think he still guides like 200 and whatever, 50 days a year or something like that. <sighs> and, uh, you know, but I think it's like, you know, I think again, it comes to that passion. Like if you can find that thing you're passionate about and you really love, I, when I guided, I, I didn't love it. I really, I mean, it, it was like, <laughs> it was a job. I mean, I, I can tell you, you know, there was, there's definitely some money to be made, but when I got out of it, I was just like, man, there was nothing I've ever done in my life that was harder than that. And, that, and maybe that's kind of oh. saying something silly because I know people do all sorts of hard jobs, but it, it, I just, I wasn't into it and I, yeah, so I didn't stick with it, but I know there are guides that are amazing right and you've probably met them that are just yeah. amazing guides and they love it so i don't know what the secret is but i, I think it's something to do with you're just kind of almost born for that sort of thing yeah well there i think that's really true and i you know this is speaking to somebody who isn't a guide but that's my impression is if I, I think if if you get as much or more pleasure out of seeing somebody else catch a fish as you get out of catching a fish yourself you know that that's probably the first prerequisite to becoming a guide hmm. and and Boy, there you know. I, I found that there are a lot of guides who 
really aren't very good. I mean, you're getting a getting a guide doesn't mean you've got a good guide, but the good guides are amazing. Uh, yep. We've fished with both men and women uh, guides who are just just fun to be with and and very knowledgeable about their water and uh, you know helpful, but always ready to stand back and let you do it yourself if that's what you want. I mean, just every angle nailed, mm-hmm. and uh, and they amaze me. Plus, you know, if you're a guide and you get 30 days of booked, you you guide for 30 straight days, getting up before the crack of dawn to That's prepare right. everything and wash your boat and get your flies together and your yeah. gear, and then go to bed long after you get oh, you yeah. you land the boat, you know, because you got a whole bunch of things to do before the next day. Right. And they'll go 30 days, 40 days doing that because next winter there may not be hardly any work at all. Yeah, I just oh man. I'm not that tough. No, no, it's a, yeah, it's for sure. It's a definitely a, definitely a tough, uh, you know, but I, but again, I think that's the cool thing is that there are some amazing things about doing it. And that's obviously why people, you know, why they do it. Um, yeah, I was thinking, um, we're, uh, we got a little bit of time here, uh, skip before we, uh, before we move on here, but I was just thinking, you know, again, if you think about your life, you know, you've had a long, you've been doing this a long time. Is there a, is there a story, you know, either just from your life generally or, or fishing some experience that kind of helped, uh, put you in the place you are now, or does anything kind of stick out throughout your you know long history and just kind of out there in the, in the world? Um, you know, as far as why I, how I got so passionate about the fly, about fly fishing that I, that I, uh, you know, been making my living at it since 1980. I, I probably more than anything, it had to be Hague Brown, just, mm. you know, what I got from his books. Um, as far as experiences, I mean, I've had a whole bunch of really dumb near death experiences and they were, most of them were my own fault. <laughs> so I'm very lucky to be here talking with you now. What, what, uh, can you, uh, talk about one of those near, near death experiences? Yeah, well, I think the one that, the two most colorful, one was uh, almost falling on a bear up in British Columbia. Hmm. I don't think that would have gone well. No. I I was a kid. My dad, as I said, was a big boater, and that's a long story, but we were way up on the coast of British Columbia in the middle of nowhere, and there was a creek, and there was a lake above the creek I saw on the charts, on the nautical charts, and so uh, it's probably 13 or something, and I went up, and I walked up the creek, and it was in a gully, and there was a pool, and there was a salmon in the pool, and I didn't see any other trout, and I didn't want to bother the salmon, and I wanted to try the lake, so I tried the lake, caught a couple of fish, it was too warm, but I still caught a couple of fish, and then as I was going back down, I was looking for rises on the lake, walking along the stream, and it wasn't very long, I mean, the lake was just, I don't know, a few hundred feet above salt water, mm-hmm. you know, and then just a slope, and the creek was going down the slope, and I almost fell, I stepped and I almost fell into the gully. Well, a bear apparently knew that salmon would get trapped in that pool trying to get up this little waterfall. So there was a bear, a full, full-grown black bear wow. in the gully. And this is a dinky creek. This was a little, you know, I mean, that pool was the only place that salmon could stop. And so the gully wasn't very big and the creek wasn't very big. And, and if I'd fallen in there, I'd fallen probably on him or at least right in front of him, you know, yes. a foot away from yep. him. And uh, what happened is I my foot started to go in, and I, I guess I always am glad that I was um, I belonged to a judo school when I was a kid, uh-huh. so I spent a lot of my youth trying not to fall, you know, because somebody was trying to make me fall. And I caught my balance, 
before I went in, my foot hanging out, and I pulled, drew my foot back and looked down, and this huge head slowly turned and looked me in the eyes. And I don't think it was very far away. I don't know, you know, a, a kid's imagination. I don't know, but I mean, I know it wasn't very far away because I was right at the edge of the gully. And I instinctively knew not to run, and I just backed up very slowly, and I just, you know, kind of saw my life pass before me, and then the bear didn't do anything. It just wanted the salmon. But right. again, if I had fallen in, I don't think it would have gone well. Yeah. Wow. And then the other story is um, same, might have been the same trip. We were we were way up in British Columbia on our way to Alaska with a bunch of boats doing this funny thing called predicted log racing, which we don't need to get into. <laughs> and and I ran out into the into the small bay to fish, and then I thought, eh, what the heck, I'll run out of the big bay. And I had this wealthy guy, we were on his boat, because my dad, well, that's another story, but yeah. I took this, you know, decent-sized Boston whaler out uh, into the big bay, and then I started to realize, what in the devil am I doing out here? Because <laughs> this is big, open ocean, and I'm I'm in this 10-foot boat, so I started to turn around and go back in, because I was a mile offshore by then, and whales started coming up all around me. Mm. And I don't know how close I came to having a whale come up underneath me. Uh, probably not that close, but they were all around me. And I heard this Jeez. rifle shot, and I look over, and I don't see anything. And there's some wind, so I don't see any anything going on in the water. And I go, where, the, where did that come from? And I look, and then I see a tail that's wider than my boat come out and slap the water. <laughs> and then they start servicing. And what do they call it when they blow their blow water oh, out of their blowhole, you know, I, sounding or something? Yeah, I'm not sure. So they were all around me, oh. and uh, I just I just sped up the outboard and looked around and tried to pick my best way out and got out. But uh, uh-huh. you know they might have they might have come up under the boat out there a mile out in the in the ocean. So yeah, well that those would have been good. Those are a couple of close calls. Yeah, the <laughs> the bears. So yeah, those were that was a grizzly bear you came across. Pardon me. That was a grizzly bear up in. No, I think that was I think that was a black bear. Oh, black bear. Okay, yeah. Well, that's yeah. probably actually that might even be worse. I guess uh, depending. You know, from what I've read, they're the ones that that do the most killing and maiming. Exactly, exactly. So yeah. you mentioned uh, you mentioned judo there. So other than keeping you away from uh, stepping on bears, what what else did uh, judo did? Did that teach you anything else throughout your life? <laughs> well, it taught me discipline. It was did it. It was the. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This this was in a, a part of uh, Seattle that at, that at, that at that time was was uh, largely Asian people, uh-huh. and uh, the cl- the school was run by Japanese instructors, and most of the kids were Japanese. Sometimes there'd be forty kids, and I'd be the only white kid. And I loved it. I was ready to move to Japan. I oh, mean, yeah? the instructors. Yeah, the instructors were so fair. If you did something wrong, and there were a lot of things you could do wrong, you did twenty push-ups. But when the twenty push-ups were over. You were vindicated. You were okay. You know, you didn't. You mm-hmm. didn't. They didn't hold it against you anymore. I loved that. I loved uh-huh. the fairness of it, and I and everybody was respectful. Those kids were the nicest kids I'd ever met in my life, huh. and they were American Japanese, sure. but uh, yeah, they were they were great. Yeah. So I, I loved judo school. That that was a big part of it. Plus, I loved judo at the time. Huh. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I'm always and I learned how to fall. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you better learn if you're going <laughs> to totally. practice judo because you get thrown around a lot. Yeah. But yeah, they teach you a lot of what they call break falls. So yeah. I think that saved me a number of times. I think <laughs> the balance that you learn and, and how to oppose, you know, unexpected pressure, how to keep your balance, that that's probably saved me a few times from going in. And uh-huh. yeah. yeah. So it was nice. good. Nice. Well, we got a little bit of time here. I was going to uh, had a couple more little quick questions for you before we get out of here. And um, one of them, you know, you mentioned uh, 
a number of uh, books and resources that you have. Are there any other resources out there that uh, you would direct people to that uh, maybe aren't your own that, that might help people that are, you know, wanting to get into fly tying or, or trout fishing? Um, other than my books, uh, boy, I mean, there's so much out there. Yeah. I know that's, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of the struggles. There's, there's so much, where do you, you know, where do you start? And I guess, I guess finding one person to, to kind of follow is a good way to do it. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. Um, I mean, I know this isn't what you asked, but I did write a book that's been in publication for 23 years that's a beginning fly tying book called Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple. And and there are other good books out there. But I I think, you know, if you're starting out as a fly tire, I I haven't, it wasn't the way I learned it, so I can't say this for sure, but I have a feeling that a book, be it mine or somebody else's, yeah. is probably a better way to go than the internet because the internet's so disjointed. You know, it, right. it bounces from this to that. A book is organized and and takes you through the subject by the hand if it's well written. Yeah, yep. Um, so you can find somebody that uh, is able to put you know put things online in a step by step you know fashion, which is actually you know I've got a little uh, online uh, fly tying course that I that I have that. Um, is kind of oh, yeah. basically it takes people walks them step by step through the process and um, oh sure so it's like a book it's organized yeah. oh yeah yeah it's totally yeah it's it, it's yep completely organized and you know same thing with YouTube I mean you can if you do it right you can set up you know categories of different ways but uh, yeah I mean I think there's there's just so much that's always the thing there's like so much information who do who do you start with and I think that's a good recommendation is find somebody who who you know you like and you can just follow them for a while but uh, yeah no I know your book I definitely that one I've uh, that's probably one of the first books I had in fly tying and I and I still have it so it's a it's a great resource for sure. Um, well i would you know one thing i would say that might might be a good closer or we can talk after that if there's more time but um fly tying and fly fishing both have become just stunningly more complex since i took it up as a kid took them both up as a kid oh yeah i mean it used yeah How, how so well a lot of it's options but i mean when i was a kid you know you fished a dry fly dead drift for the most part, or you've really, we weren't fishing nymphs back then much to speak of, um, you know, back in the sixties, it started in the mid late seventies, really. Uh, so you're just fishing dries and wet flies then? Yeah. And in lakes we would fish wet flies, but you know, I didn't even own a sinking line back then. I mean, now you look at, just look at lines alone. You've got, you can look at a, a scientific anglers ca- catalog online and you just yeah. see all these different kinds of lines in there. If you're an experienced fly fisher, you have a pretty good idea of what you want. But um, and it's the same with but but if you're new to it, you're looking at all these lines, and just going, oh my god, what do I, yeah. what do I do? Yeah. And it's the same with fly tying. I mean, it used to be that um, you know there was if you wanted a rib, you pretty much used a quill or you used copper wire. And there were there weren't very many choices now. My gosh, all these artificial rib materials, you know, That's and right. different kinds of hackles and and all these synthetics just go and go yeah. and. You know, you can get buffalo hair now, which we didn't, <laughs> it never even occurred to us, and things right. like that. I don't know if you should have all these things. Some of them, I'm sure, are not very useful. They're just kind of will pass. But, but yeah. then a lot of them have some little quality about them that in certain circumstances might be just right. Mm-hmm. But I do think, here's the, the, the thing I would say to, to new newcomers in the sport, because a lot of what I've done has been to uh, help newcomers, in, uh-huh. both in fly fishing and fly tying. Um, even though the sport has grown a lot more complex, more techniques, more tackle, more fly tying materials and techniques, you know, all this stuff, um, 
the basics really haven't changed. And so just go to the basics. And if you need help, find a book, go to a fly shop and ask somebody, ask a friend. But, you know, you've, just for example, you've got fluorocarbon, tippet. I guess we don't have that many kinds of tippet, but you've got fluorocarbon and standard. Now you've got, I think, fluorocarbon coated. And uh, all these, you know, just go with standard tippet to start out with, and you'll be fine. The standard stuff caught fish for a long time. And I mean, when I say standard stuff, I mean standard rods, standard lines, standard leaders, standard flies, before all these options came out. So if you stick with the basics, uh, you can catch fish, and you can get started in this sport, and then you'll figure out later which of those options you like to explore. That's great advice. I think that is, yeah, keep it simple. The kiss, the kiss method is, is the way to go. Uh, all right. Well, before I let you get out of here, I just had uh, uh, one other, uh, two other quick ones. So if you had to pick, I know you don't probably want to do this, but if you had to pick a couple of dry flies that, you, you know, you had to just kind of go with, which which ones, you know, without necessarily matching the hash, do you have a couple of generalists that you would use or you'd, you'd recommend to have in your box at all times? Yeah. Well, um, you know, that's always changing too, but... Um... I actually did an article on this for Midcurrent and mm. the, the online magazine. And the, oh, yeah. the, the only pr- problem is I have to be really clear here. This isn't necessarily what I would recommend because there are some really good flies that you, I could recommend that you could find anywhere. Like the you know, parachute atoms are just so, such a versatile fly. Yeah. And, but um, if I had to pick two, and did you say dry flies or just trout flies? Uh, I said dry flies, but I would actually maybe just trout flies is a better way to put it. Okay. Well, let me just let me just do two dry flies okay. for now, and then if if you want to do some more than that, okay. Um, I fish a lot with. Um, well, last fall, see, this is always changing, but I fished a fly called the Morris May. Okay. It's uh, it's a very simple imitation of a mayfly, and you can tie it with a shocker with split tails. But we were running into all these mayfly species that crawl out of the water to hatch, so I was using split tails, and we were fishing for browns and rainbows and cutthroats in Montana. And they were getting really picky on that slow water with the with the heavier hatches, and and that just has always been a fly I can rely on, you know, on any water, no matter how smart the fish are. And it's not a great floater, but it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be a you know a, a slow water picky fish type of fly. Okay. The the Morris May, okay. and it's in a bunch of my books. Yep. And then another one that I fish a lot now, which is a fairly new fly for me, but it's called the uh, Hackled Dad. No, that not that. I got that wrong. Yeah. The Hackled Skips Promise. Okay. And it's um, it's a it complements the Morris May because it it's tied larger generally from twelve up to size eight hooks, even six. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's just a really fast fly to tie once you get used to it. But uh, I use it all the time. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, those are all definitely. Uh, yeah, I'll link out to that mid current article as well in the show notes uh, as I noted earlier. Uh, It'll be at uh, episode 36 for this one. So, yeah, we'll, we'll provide links to those, and maybe I can find some photos of uh, those flies online as well. Um, cool. Well, uh, just had one last question. Um, you know, in the next six months or so, um, do you have anything new coming up you want to let people know we can expect to, uh, you know, any new projects or anything else you got going we can keep an eye out for? Uh, the next six months. Well, I don't have any books coming out in the sec- next six months, but recently Brian Chan and I uh, – took back the rights to Morrison Chan on fly fishing trout lakes, which has been around since 1999. Mm. And we, we did an updated version of it a few years ago and, uh, we took back the rights and reprinted ourselves. So it's back in print. So that's kind of exciting. Um, and as far as, 
uh, you know, I've got some clinics and, and things here and there, but those things mostly for me, because I don't, I don't do a lot of on the water, you know, hands-on. Well, I do hands-on flight time for sure, but I'm, I'm not one of those guys who does a lot of, you know, weekend clinics that, where people come to someplace, some lodge or something right. and fish with you. Yep. I mean, I've done those, but I, I don't tend to do a lot of those. My, my busy time starts sometime in the fall and then sometimes I'm just real running around all from fall through winter into into spring doing uh fly fishing shows and okay. and you know expos and speaking for clubs and doing That's clinics it. at fly shops That's and it. that kind of stuff what, what's your next uh, expo or show or i guess we're kind of past the expo season but is there something else coming up this this summer that, that you're going to be doing well yeah the the next one is going to be in about i can't tell you for sure it's like in 24th 20 something like that whatever's a saturday of June, uh, I'm teaching a, um, an all day thing. It's part, part of it'll be flight time. Part of it'll be instruction on or not on, but well, yeah, the instruction part will be mostly be on fly fishing trout lakes mm-hmm. and the flight time. I, I'm trying to remember because, you know, these things, I have to look them up to see what I'm supposed to be doing in a week. That's right. <laughs> and that's, I got to look it up in a week early because I have to practice everything. But that's right. until then I kind of forget about it, you know, sure. but, but, um, I'm doing that in Hamilton, Montana oh. Which for is, the flight club there. And I, is that Western Montana? Pardon me? Is that Western Montana? That is. Yeah. Oh. That's pretty much as far West as you can go. Oh, okay. and still have a decent sized town. It's not far out of Missoula. Gotcha. Hamilton. Yeah. It's a great area. Which which was really kind of funny because we fished Hamilton last summer. Then we liked it so much, we came back in the fall. And then we got back from our fall trip. I had a call from, of all places, not, you know, some little town in British Columbia, not someplace in Maine, but from Hamilton, hmm. from the club there. And they said, we want you to come and, and do yeah. our annual deal for us. And I said, what are the odds of this? <laughs> Could have been 100 other clubs or maybe 200. I don't know. But yeah. But anyway, yeah, so that's, I'm going, we're going back to Hamilton. That's late June. Cool. Cool. Good deal. Well, I'll leave it at that. And, uh, if people want to find you, um, where, where should we uh, send them, uh, if they want, if they had questions? Oh, just, uh, go to my website, skipmorrisflytying.com. And there's a, uh, what do you call it? A contact form yep. or contact thing in there. Yeah. So they can email me and perfect. That works. Perfect. Great. Well, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll put a link there in the show notes for that. And, uh, yeah, Skip, just want to thank you for coming on and spend the time to chat about, uh, you know, tying and fishing and focus on trout. I know, you know, like I mentioned, your fly tying books and things like that. I've had them on my shelf for a number of years. So, you know, I highly recommend anybody that's, you know, new to it or, you know, even been doing it a while that you got a, a lot of great resources there. So yeah, just appreciate you coming on and wanted to thank you for, uh, providing all the, uh, the knowledge today. Well, my pleasure. Really appreciate you inviting me. All right. Thanks, Skip. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Dave. All right. See ya. Bye. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 36. If you get a chance, send me a tweet on Twitter with a lightning bolt emoji to let me know you're still around. That'd be... uh, pretty cool to hear who's uh, still sticking around to the very end here so uh, that's wet fly swing on twitter thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today i'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and hope to see you online or on the river later thanks for listening to the wet fly swing fly fishing show for notes and links from this episode visit wetflyswing.com and if you found this episode helpful please subscribe and leave a review on itunes 